Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Season 2, Episode 9, Independence Immediate, Part 2. Last time, we left the Congo in February 1960. The Belgians were looking firmly towards their date of exit, or retreat, whichever you prefer. But with the scent of freedom in the air, tensions had arisen throughout the colony. Previously, the peoples had been united in their common grievances at their soon-to-be-gone European rulers. But with imminent departure, these feelings had less and less resonance. For the first time in a long while, the peoples of the Congo had space to look sideways at each other. Officially now, Belgium just wanted to get out. They saw the unstoppable momentum of independence, and knew to fight this would have meant military conflict. The Belgian people and their liberal Christian coalition government had no appetite for this. In the Congo there was turmoil throughout the west, south, southeast and east, and seeing the conflicts associated with other decolonialisation movements in sub-Saharan Africa, the Belgians agreed to leave, in short order. They set a date of independence as the 30th of June 1960. This was in only four months' time, and the decision as to who would rule was to be granted to the people. Democracy was coming, and all males of Congolese nationality over 21 were required to vote. The Belgian Congo was to be a new country, and here we see officially, for the first time in history, and in our podcast, the birth of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Finally, it was to be a country with its own parliament, its own rulers, and its own laws. Elections were set to be held in the last month of colonial rule. These were organised for May, only three months away now. But there were few immediate celebrations amongst those who were vying for power. They were focused on the task in hand. They had popular campaigns to run. People standing for election were not the tribal chiefs of old. They were new players, but for most of them the populist route of emphasising their cultural heritage and anger at the colonisers was the most fruitful path to votes. As we have seen earlier, most of the organisations were based around the empires and identities of the past. Principal amongst these were the three old empires. The Bakongo, led by Kasavubu of the Abago party, were in the west, and the Baluba were represented by Albert Kolonji of the MNCK party in the south. The Lunda were represented by Moise Shombe of Konakat, although this was more specifically wedded to the Katanga region where they shared a presence with Balubakat, representing the Luba peoples in the same area. The exception to these parties was the Mouvement National Congolais Lumumba, or MNCL, with Patrice Lumumba at the helm. He was from the centre of the country, near Kisangani. He identified with the Pan-African internationalist movement and saw the best future for the Congolese as a whole. His politics were shaped by the optimism provided from the release of European rule across the continent. He had more in common with the Ghanaian president Kwame Nkrumah than the populist parties talking to ethnic identities. The rhetoric of the campaigns was inflammatory. We have heard Lumumba's poem in the last episode, but his was not a unique message. Abaco was the driving force behind independence, and their leaflet narrative also held no punches. Here are Abaco's elections promises of 1960. When independence arrives, the Europeans will have to leave the country. The goods left behind will become the property of the people. 
that is to say the houses, the trucks, the merchandise, the factories and the fields, will be given back to the Bakongo. All laws will be abolished. We will no longer have to obey the traditional chiefdoms, nor the elders, nor the officials, nor the missionaries, nor the bosses. And this went on. Utter nonsense at best, but extremely dangerous at worst. This had never been agreed to, and if the changing times gave some allowance for people granting this credibility, there was only ever going to be disappointment. Most concerning of all, this would create a threatening sense of entitlement amongst those who felt others, whomever they may be identified as, had some recompense to pay them. Kolonji's MNCK poster in South Kazai was similarly focused. Its only campaign slogan on one poster was essentially Vote MNCK because no Belgians, no Russians, no Americans and no French imperialists. So no ambiguity about the manifesto prophecies there. The new Congo would definitely be for the Congolese, although notably little in the way of what the party would do with its newfound power if it was successful. But there were other groups in the Congo who were less enamoured with the looming independence. There was of course the European settlers, many of whom had worked for years to move themselves and their families to the Congo. They viewed the situation with degrees of alarm. Most Belgians in the Congo actually agreed with the assessment of the Belgian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, before independence was unstoppable. The Ministry's official position had been there is no native authority that is capable of running the country and it would signify a return to chaos. Separately, they documented, self-determination could lead to misery and exploitation of the masses by a small group of agitators. But these settlers knew a return to Belgium would be uncomfortable. Denbure's study, recalling the Belgian Congo, documents how these were the Belgians who were most interested in the Congo. Many studied for years to earn a place in the colonial administration. They learned the languages and forever remained attached to the land. But at home they were unpopular now, seen as taking advantage of those more unfortunate to themselves. In the colonial's words, Prior to independence, everything we achieved in the Congo was said to be astounding. After independence, it is said that we achieved nothing. In the lazy zeitgeist of the time, territorials were oppressors, whom it was uncomfortable to be around. Nevertheless, times were changing, and many preferred the stigma of being a formal colonial and the associated social disapproval to the uncertainty of staying. People sent their belongings back and booked non-return flights to Belgium for their families. In the first two weeks of June 1960, four times as many passengers left the airport as the same time last year. The threat was not imagined. It was often overt. Belgians recounted that you could see, and I quote, pantomimes of throat-cutting and menacing gestures. Perhaps more surprisingly, there was another group of people who felt disenfranchised by the coming elections and the looming change of power. By allowing the vote, the power associated with the tribal elders was also washing away. There were many such chefferies as the colonial authorities termed them. They had power under pre-colonial traditions and some autonomy during colonial rule for local matters, but this was all to disappear. They were not ignored during the January roundtables in Brussels, and indeed six attended the conference with their deputies, but ultimately they did not influence the direction of power sharing. These were the real nobility of the tribal peoples, 
and the Belgians did use the opportunity of their attendance to try and settle some of the ethnic conflicts, particularly the Lulua and Luba conflicts in the south. But they could not adapt in the time. The new opportunists of the political parties had grabbed the 1960 election space, and they would be new chiefs, so to speak. Maybe the old order was too focused on the disputes of the time, or maybe they were unable to adapt, but either way in the elections, their power gave way to the newcomers. Some of them did, however, find themselves roles in the government after independence. Oh, and lest we forget, the outside world was also watching. The United States of America were very, very interested in what was going on. They were preparing to send a new agent to the Congo, Larry Devlin, to boost the CIA activities in the country. They did not want the resources of the Congo, including the uranium, copper and other precious rare earths falling outside of the American sphere of influence. They needed to understand the dynamics of power, with concerns regarding what they saw as the socialist leanings by Patrice Lumumba. What they were really looking for was a loyal friend who could help steer the Congo in the direction they wanted. But more on that later. For most of the people, however, this was a time of excitement. Jan van Sina was a Belgian historian who became one of the foremost academic experts on Central Africa. He was teaching in Kinshasa, then Leopoldville at the time, and he quotes that the Congolese students were dazzled by the vision of a grander future, tinged with millenarian fervour. They saw before them a new Jerusalem in which they were to be the new priesthood, idealistically offering all their talents to raise the splendour of the future nation, while also basking in the kind of prestige accorded Catholic saints, confessors or martyrs. It appears that the mysticism and religious presences of Kemper Vita and Simon Kimbangu were still very much part of the Congolese DNA. But for some, the looming change manifested itself differently. One tribe in the north retreated to a wooden mock-up of a plane as the best way to prepare. This was an anomaly, but it is fair to say that some of the rural communities would be less informed than the cities as to the nature of the coming elections. Certainly the distinction between the House of Deputies and the Senate and the power sharing between them would have required considerable attention. But overwhelmingly there was great optimism. And the soundtrack to this, which remains popular throughout Central Africa today, was the Independent Cha-Cha, performed by Joseph Capaselli from the group L'African Jazz. If I had a budget for this podcast, which included performing rights, I would love to play this, but you'll need to look this up now. With lyrics in Lingala and Kikongo dancing to laid back rhythms in the tropical heat, the names of the leaders above were mentioned in happy music. This was a glorious time to be Congolese, and the majority of the people were excitedly optimistic. The new politicians, however, did not have too much time for dancing. They approached the elections and independence with full attention. Kasavubu of Abaco interestingly sought the advice of Van Bilsen, the Belgian academic who had helped kick the start of the process some years earlier with his 30-year plan for independence. He was concerned at the state of preparation for the new government. Specifically, he mentioned three challenges that the new state would have to face. A lack of elites, a lack of political experience amongst the general population, and adverse economic conditions. He certainly felt that more time was needed to prepare, but for the Congolese parties, and the Belgians, it was full steam ahead. His concerns fell on deaf ears, particularly with respect to Kasavubu, who had demanded a Congolese government in January at the first Brussels Roundtable. 
Independence immediate indeed. In April, only one month before the elections, a second round table conference was held, again in Belgium. This was to agree the economic separation between the new country and the former colonisers. But with their eyes on the elections, only one party attended. Tellingly, it was Moise Chombe of the Katangenlunde National Party, Konakat. His party were by far the favourites in the wealthy southern Katangan region, where the copper mines were located. Attracted by the opportunities the mines represented, it was also where the majority of the European and South African settlers were living. Belgians sent the best people they had to this conference. They were represented by the professors that had been teaching the students on the Congolese side, and Belgium was in no way philanthropic in its approach. The complex economic negotiations may not have been the focus of many of the campaigning politicians, but they were to set the fundamental economic direction, and in this the Belgian delegation ran rings around the Congolese. First, they allowed the companies in the Congo to decide whether they wished to be governed by Belgian or Congolese law. Fearful above all of forced nationalisations, i.e. giving the companies back to the Congolese state, and even fearful of improved labour and tax laws, they unanimously settled on Belgian law. Effectively they, and in turn Belgian as major investors, retained full ownership and control of the economic activities just by keeping their headquarters in Belgium. Even assets owned directly by the legacy state, such as railways and other infrastructure assets, would not be transferred. These were to be held in a new Belgio-Congolese development company. The Belgians retained the wealth generated from this new separate entity. There were Congolese journalists there, one of whom you may know, called Joseph Mobutu, who recalls the one-sidedness of the meeting. And there I sat a silly, unmannered journalist at the same table with the great white sharks of Belgian finance. We had no financial training whatsoever, and the other members of my delegation who represented the other key Congolese movements hadn't either. It is not one of my fondest memories. From April the 26th to May the 16th, we negotiated inch by inch, like one of those cowboys in a western who lets himself be bamboozled time and time again by professional conmen. We talked until late at night, and the next day we discovered that the Belgian Parliament had meanwhile made decisions that rendered the negotiations obsolete. We had to fight for everything, of course. We let ourselves be rolled. Our partners in the discussion used a whole series of legal and technical ruses to successfully safeguard the hold which the multinationals and the Belgian capitalists had on the Congolese pocketbook. These were the words of Mobutu, but in reference to Van Raybrook, I left the quote directly from his book. In summary, at the May Economic Conference, whatever happened to the power, the money was to stay with Belgium and the foreign investors. This didn't make too much of an impact in the Congo. In the background of obliviousness, the elections were held. Despite the increasingly threatening rhetoric between parties and intimidation wildly used by them, the people would decide. The Congolese voice was no longer unheard, and the people queued and sweated in the tropical heat outside polling stations until their chance came. They voted, returned home, and waited for the results to come in. And despite some delayed returns from areas where there was conflict, the results were counted. Here, we should mention the system of government, which had been decided upon only five months earlier. It's not straightforward to decipher, unfamiliar as I am with the Belgian system on which it is based. But here is my best attempt at the explanation.
First, there was a Chamber of Deputies. This was elected by the votes with one candidate per 100,000 people. With a steadily growing population of 13.7 million people in 1960, this meant 137 deputies were elected. Secondly, there were 14 senators who were to be elected for each province who would sit in the Senate. From these, a largely symbolic head of state was to be appointed as president, who in reality was only able to ratify laws, but crucially had the power to nominate the prime minister and cabinet members. The prime minister would be the candidate for the chamber who had the most votes, and he and the cabinet would then effectively govern the country. If collectively the PM and Cabinet lost the confidence of over half of the combined house, or two-thirds of a single house, they would be out of power and new people would be appointed. This is a good attempt at political governance, with appropriate checks and balances, but it is not that intuitive. With a campaign as populist as it had been, it would have been a difficult message to put out to the electorate in only five months. Add that to the complexities of the regional parties with roots in ancient kingdoms, versus new radical nationalist parties, and there was a good chance of ambiguity when the votes were in. The presidential role as head of state, with only limited power, seems an odd position for someone to campaign for. But nevertheless, the system was set. The votes came in, and a winner was appointed. And the winner was, you guessed it, in need of some discussion. In the national result, for the Chamber of Deputies, Patrice Lumumba, and his national MNCL party won the majority of votes, enjoying 23% of an 80% turnout, with the next party, PSA, at 12% of the votes. Lumumba's party had a clear win amongst the parties, but fell very short of an overall majority. Abaco came in third, with 10% of votes received. In the Senate it was a similar picture. Lumumba won 21 out of the 84 seats, with the other 15 parties all receiving less than 7 votes, with 5 independents winning seats also. But there was a huge discrepancy to this result at the regional level. Abaco won the Congo province in the west, Kalonji's MNCK won in the Kasai, his Luba Hartsland, and Moise Shombe won overwhelmingly in southern Katanga where the Lunda lived as a majority. The Union of the Mongo Party won in the north where peoples had identified themselves as a collective of peoples, living then mostly in the Equator province, even though this collective had only been proposed by Belgium anthropologists in the 1920s. Only in Lumamba's home province around Kisangani did the MNCL win the popular vote regionally. But as the clear national overall winner, Patrice Lumamba was appointed Prime Minister. Lumamba was a pan-Africanist with a strong vision of the DRC as an independent state, forging its own way in the world, but he needed to form a coalition government. Parliament voted Kasavubu as head of state in a nod to his forthright role in the independence campaign. And so the head of a party formed to protect the identity of the Bakongo or people of the Kingdom of the Congo became the first president of the DRC. Reflecting the history of his lands, Kasavubu was keener on a federalist state and remained overtly loyal to his kingdom but in Patrice Lumumba, he had a Prime Minister, who was individually the most popular person across the country, and fiercely Congolese nationalist as a whole. In addition, Shombe and his party had two ministerial posts, but they felt that this was a disservice to the wealthy Katanga region, the economic powerhouse of the country. This created obvious tensions. 
but Patrice Lumumba was nothing if not fiercely pro-Congolese and pro-African. He had the gift of rhetoric, and if anyone could rally the politicians and the people at this critical stage, it was him. And so there we have it. The Congolese have chosen their leaders, and although still economically unfree, they do have political freedom. But the outside world was watching and waiting. We shall see what happened on Independence Day next time. And by next time, I mean season three. So I apologise that this will likely to be released in January 2023. Time has caught up with me. I am lucky enough to have a job, but with lockdown ending, travel has once again come to the fore and I am struggling to keep up with the podcast production. I have written the early episodes, so these will come. But in the meantime, do reach out to me. I love to hear from listeners and people interested in this history. Drop me a mail at author at thehistoryofthecongo.com. The History of the Congo is all one word, by the way. You can even leave a review if you like. I'm not too worried about this. It's just to get some feedback. But as far as the Congo is concerned, by now we can't help but have our hopes high for the peoples. Independence is here at last. And I'm sure you can join me in rooting for the success of the new government. But we will leave it here. We shall see what happened next time in Season 3. So until then, safe travels. Thank you.